Hello, I'm Danny Fontaine and welcome to the Pitch Masters podcast. In this week's episode, I interview my colleague and friend, Jeremy Connell Waite, Master of Communications at IBM and all-round inspiring bloke. Jeremy Connell Waite, how lovely to have you. Thanks very much for joining me. Please, can you give yourself a, a bit of an introduction? Who are you and what do you do? Man, we're going to have some fun. I'm really looking forward <laughs> to this. Thanks for having me on, Danny. This is going to be a, a bit of a giggle. Um, I'm a, I work at IBM. I have a strange job. Um, I invented it. It's actually modeled on a celebrity that maybe we could get to afterwards. But I'm basically a speechwriter and a storyteller. About half of my time is spent working with sales folks and consultants, generally working on large technology deals, often ones that are linked to some sort of sustainability element where we're trying to change the world in some form while we transform a business. The other half is speech writing. You know, part of that involves executive performance coaching, working with senior leaders and CXOs. But um, I just write stories and speeches. And, and, and I'm um, sure a lot of people listening to this will, will think, how is there even a job like that at IBM? I think, you know, uh, it's quite interesting. There wasn't. It? I had there to make it up. Yeah. We're, I joke we're a 111-year-old startup, you know. We founded in 1911, but there's um, I'm, my official title is communications designer. Not that that means anything, but I'm the only <laughs> one that we've ever had. And in fact, I mean, just tell you where that came from. Originally, I was just looking for my perfect job. That's all right. it was. You know, I loved the company. We'll get into maybe why I joined later on. But I was just looking for like, what would my dream job actually look like? And I started mapping it down. And I love politics, but I was never going to work in politics. I love language and rhetoric. I love neuroscience and the art of persuasion and influence. But also, on the other hand, want to try and change the world, right? I love this idea, build a business, change the world and have fun. And that just didn't work anywhere. It's like, it's not marketing but it wasn't comms and it's not PR it definitely wasn't consulting so I took this really weird hybrid model and for the life of me couldn't figure out like where that job title yeah. lived and I've been called evangelist and chief strategy officer and all sorts in the past anyway I'm a massive fan of the West Wing right okay yeah, the yeah. TV show yeah, yeah, right yeah. from the early 2000s by Aaron Sorkin and my hero in that my favorite character is Rob Lowe who Aye. plays a character called Sam Seaborn yeah and he's communications director. Turns out he's actually modeled on someone called Ted Sorensen, who was the speechwriter and special advisor for JFK. And I basically took Sam Seaborn's job description from the West Wing <laughs> with bits of Ted Sorensen and decided that is my ideal job. I want 50% policy advice in the weeds, making a difference with the folks that matter, trying to tell better stories. And then fifty percent speech writing, and, and that's how, basically how do you join a company and make your own job? How, how was it fairly straightforward? It depends how you go, I and mean, this is where we have we have a phrase at IBM that we don't use often enough. It's called wild ducks, mm. and wild ducks is based on it's actually based upon a parable from the eighteen hundreds, a Danish philosopher called Soren Kierkegaard. But the son of our founder, Thomas J. Watson, used to use the phrase all the time. And he was re he was kind of speaking about the people who think differently. Right? The people Steve Jobs stole part of that narrative that was intended for IBM years ago. And you'll probably be familiar with his to the crazy ones. 
the misfits, the round pegs and the square holes who think differently. So there was poems like that that were written for IBM and that's where the Apple Think Different campaign came from. IBM's all about think, that's our motto. So he's like, right, think different, we'll use. But he was talking in that famous poem about the wild duck spirit. And the wild ducks, as Thomas J. Watson said, are the creative ones. He said, wild ducks are the creative ones. They're the restless explorers who were always looking for a new angle on a big problem. And what he was referring to, not only was to stop people being complacent, but to stop being in boxes, to think creatively and to try and do things that have never been done before, which is a big part of IBM's DNA, which is why we put so much money into research to invent technology that hasn't been invented yet. So I just looked at that and thought, right, I'm going to take him at his word. Yeah. If he says we're embracing wild ducks and that's supposed to be the spirit of this company, I'm going to take the entrepreneurial mindset and invent a job that doesn't exist. Love so it. let's see if they mean it. <laughs> I'm Love not it. saying it was easy, but, <laughs> but you know, companies like ours, especially when you're in a big business and there's a lot of people who are very smart doing very similar jobs, it's crucial to stand out and to do something and try and make it your own and to to name it and maybe there's a process or a methodology that you bring to that so it was really my attempt not just to find a job that i love that's getting me out of bed every day but also where can i add a ton of value to this business where i currently think there's some holes well and, and, uh, you know i got to say that's what i'm trying to do i uh I've seen it working for you. Over the years, I've seen your job role change. I've seen all of the things that you create, mm -hmm. all of the people you teach. So it feels like it's always changing, really, and, and, and evolving, which is a, an exciting place to be. Tell me, mm. tell me the story about how you came to join IBM in the first place, if, if you don't mind I, telling it. Um, I don't mind telling it at all. Thanks for asking. But I didn't want to join. Right. Honestly, I didn't. And I think, I'm sure... I'm actually, I probably deleted it to be polite, but I, I'm sure there's stuff in my Instagram. I'm not on social media really that much anymore, but there, there was probably some things that were veiled pokes at my friends who worked at IBM back. At, I was kind of Facebook, Adobe, Salesforce, you know, right. um, love Salesforce, massive fan of Mark Benioff, love the spirit of the business, storytelling's at the heart. I mean, they've got pitch teams, you know, the guys that coach that stuff. Tony Robbins, right? Yeah. Tony Robbins was teaching him, yeah. performance management to execs at Dreamforce. I just loved the company, never wanted to leave. I even had a bet that I still owe um, <laughs> to go on a whiskey tour and a bourbon tour because somebody said, I bet you won't stay at Salesforce five years. And I'm like, I'm going to be here for a long time. <laughs> You're wrong. Anyway, so yeah. basically what happened, yeah, we found out. And I joined to help set up their marketing cloud and worked on go-to-market strategy, a very similar role that I had at Adobe. And um, yeah, no plans to leave. And being recruited by IBM, just as you would, right? You know, people who are a little bit noisy and look like they're making some sort of a difference, um, targets for recruiters. And I was just like, no. I, I turned them down like two, three times. And, and it kind of, each time they came back, it almost felt like, because I wasn't soliciting anything, but it felt like, they were giving me more of a blank canvas, right? And like, oh, well, maybe if you could do, you could be an evangelist and you could do that. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not interested because I've got this great job at sales. Well, you could do that, but you could do this as well. Right. And then it, it almost got to the point that I'm like, I'm not even sure if this is real. Is this 
like some <laughs> recruiter that's just trying to dangle a few hooks like yeah, they do yeah. with a big job that doesn't exist to get you on the books and send you somewhere else. So I'm like, no, no, not, not at all. No chance. Now, in the middle of all that, Danny, we find out um, after what was, you know, a difficult time, as many people will empathize with trying to have kids. We found out we were pregnant and we we're pregnant with twins and um, identical twins. Yeah. Which generally means, right, that they're going to be sharing the placenta and the sac and they're, they're there together in the, in the womb. And they weren't growing very fast. So whilst I'm at Salesforce, I'm going backwards and forwards to different hospitals with my wife trying to understand, like, what's going on. Because, you know, when, when you've got a kid and you see the percentiles of where they are in the growth and development for the scans, you know, those little black and white scans you're super proud of, Um once you start looking at minus figures, people get nervous and the, and the doctors and the people in the hospital start looking at, you know, minus 10, you know, we've got a problem. And we were seeing figures that were like minus 47. So these kids are not going to survive. Almost to the point that they're saying, don't give them a name and don't build a nursery. They're both going to die. We just don't know when. Um, I'm actually getting goosebumps just yeah, thinking well, about it. Me too. Listening. So, so what ends up happening instead of being one of those couples, that just has a few scans and then hopefully everything, you know, is okay at the end and, and birth and that we're in every few days, you know, and several scans and bounced between the fetal medical research center, just incredible people um, at Denmark Hill. In fact, there's a Netflix show about it with oh, wow. our professor. He's called Cupris Nicolades. It's called Surgeon's Cut okay. on Netflix. It's phenomenal. They they say they're like poets and philosophers. It's like these doctors and surgeons that are like samurais. Their, their mindset is insane. The most beautiful people you've ever met, but completely mad. But they're doing stuff that's never been done before, right? So we find out we're having we're at scans at St. Thomas's. Um, we're due to give birth if that was ever going to happen probably not at chelsea westminster royal brompton which is the heart hospital and then you know so we're bouncing everywhere and generally what happens is we find out about 20 weeks that you know the smaller twin is definitely going to die and she's not going to survive because he's not enough so we need you to have this pioneering laser surgery it's never really been done before like like this um and we're like oh wow we need to go away and think no no tonight this is happening right now. And basically, it's almost like, in, without getting super graphic, right, it's like the back of a cabbage leaf when you're basically lasering those veins on the back of a cabbage leaf, which is so that one of those twins, because they're sharing the sac, right, isn't going to get any more of the nutrients in the blood because ultimately, if one was to die, you're forced to give birth to the other one because they're sharing the same sac. Now, if you do this, that means that you're trying to increase the odds of the other twin to save the, right, um, so, so that happens at 20 weeks and, um, we keep going back week after week and they're both still alive, both very, very small, um, blood flow to the brain, umbilical cord, you know, bladder, all of that stuff. And the doctors are like, damn, right. This is, I mean, amazing, but chances are you're not going to survive birth. And the smaller one, you know, has got heart problems. So anyway, we do survive birth. <laughs> which nobody expected. And then you find out straight away, not only are you going to be in NICU for a long time, but also the smaller twin, because it was twin one and twin two, because that's how you kind of name them. Twin two was the smaller one. Um, well, now she needs heart surgery. 
And because she's so small, literally in the palm of your hand, like nappies smaller than a business card, they're like, um, might not survive that. Now, during this process, I'm trying to detach myself emotionally from what's going on because it's hard, right? I mean, you're living in this world as well now. So it's just hard to process anyone that's been really intensive care. Spent a lot of time in hospitals, know what I'm talking about. So I'm looking at the data that's coming off in the little girls, right? And, um, and I'm like, where does that data go? Just talking to one of the data scientists. Where does it go? And it's, you can see, and she's got like cannulas coming out of every vein to the point that she had a towel on her head to cover up all the veins in her head that also had wires coming out of. Where does all this data go? Oh, it's really, really complicated. We'll just know. I'm like, look, first of all, I just want a distraction. But secondly, I'm a tech guy. Right. I probably I understand a little bit about exactly. cloud. Like I yeah. can take that. And they were like, oh, okay then. So the data scientist starts talking. And basically you're talking about 10,000 data points a second coming off that bed, right? And then then trying to figure out with that data, how do we make intelligent decisions off the back of it in that moment? Now, I'm at Salesforce selling marketing cloud stuff. I'm even speaking to Rory and we talk about the technologies and marketing platforms and stuff. I'm looking at single view of a customer. And just like I was pitching at Salesforce for Mark Benioff, I'm talking about like 10,000 tweets a second. How do you speak to a big CPG company to take all of this data from the social web and everywhere else to consolidate, to speak to a, get a decision, personalization, or to speak to a team? So single view of a customer felt very much like what the hospital was saying to me about single view of a patient, right? So I'm like, oh man, that makes sense. That's like... I'm still thinking she's going to die, but I'm, this sounds like that sounds great. Um, who's doing that? And, um, and that's when they said, we're working on a project with IBM. And there's an AI, an artificial intelligence engine called Watson. She's the big AI engine tool that we have that drives a lot of our stuff. And um, that's helping the NHS physicians make smarter decisions faster, especially in areas where it's never been done before. And I'm like, no, I'm covered in goosebumps. So I went back to the recruiter and basically said, first, if that's true, I would like to speak to our CEO, um, which was like getting an audience with, you know, royalty. President, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I said at the time, which is hard to say at the moment, given where we are on, on Friday the 16th, but it was like trying to get an audience with the Queen, right? Sure. So it was really difficult. So you're speaking to Ginny. Um, but I'm like, if that is true, I'll join the company this afternoon. And I remember saying, I will have no problem standing on any stage or in any boardroom, either giving keynotes or pitching CXOs about this company can do all of these things to help you solve your problems. Because I know that the same technology that is doing that is also doing this in NICU, you know, helping families like us when you've got you know, no chance to survive. The only reason I was asking for an explanation when all that data's going was because they got the numbers so wrong and our kids survived and now they're perfectly happy, right. no side effects, they're a pain in the ass, they're beautiful, you know, and they're doing really well at school and we're in a band and we're all learning musical instruments together at the moment. <laughs> but at the time, I was saying, how do you make sure you get better odds of survival for the next family that comes right. along. How do you give them a more accurate view? Because you've clearly got it wrong for us. And that was where 
kind of the personal world and the professional world collided. And we didn't know what I was going to do, but I joined IBM straight after. You've been in IBM for a while and you've had, you know, quite a lot of experience before that. What, are, do you consider yourself someone who's done a lot of pitches? I guess, it. first of all, you've got to define what a pitch is, right? But I, yes, right? You know, a pitch is influencing an audience, you know? It's the, it's the bare essentials of a story, which is ultimately make somebody feel something so they do something. And that pitch is either promotion panels, pitching a team that's trying to do delivery, trying to inspire the troops. If morale is down, you know, trying to paint a picture of a new vision. I've spent a lot of time in boardrooms with very senior people, CXOs. I've spent time on stages. I prefer spending a lot of time backstage yeah. helping other people to pitch and other people to tell their story in a more compelling way. But yeah, I think I've managed to see a lot. And I mean, a lot of it, we can, you can tell me kind of which bit you'd like to double down on. But apart from being a student of emotions, which we'll come back to in just a second, I think it's just about, it's that obsessive level of empathy. It's like, how could you put yourself in the audience's shoes to such a degree that you know exactly what they want and need to hear? So you've got to start looking at storytelling techniques from Hollywood. You've got to understand what are the frameworks that the best presidential speech writers would use in order to persuade and influence. Sometimes you're trying to win hearts and minds, but sometimes you're trying to conquer people who are going out of their way to not work with you. Or right. might even be telling their team, don't work with these because, right. look, they're good in this area over there and they can stay there, but they're trying to pitch for this other work over here. That's not their thing. You know, we've got someone else to do that. So it kind of boils down to this thing of people who pitch are often trying to look, not necessarily the smartest person in the room, but it's this, it's this exchange of knowledge of this is everything I know and everything I can do and ultimately everything I can sell you. But at the end of the day, People are not persuaded by what you say, but by what they understand. So I think the mindset of the best pitchers and presenters is understanding the personality profile, the psychology, the decision-making archetypes, right? Are they an introvert and extrovert? You know, even down to genders and how they identify and political bias and influence and family and sports and whatever that nuance could be. But these are all the things that are going to help us to find that connection. And it's not about us. It's like, what do they understand? And the biggest part of that is usually simplifying complexity. So it feels like something that's in their language and not just the buzzwords and that we want to drop. And I mean, that for me is just what it all boils down to. It's just radical amounts of empathy. Now, there's a lot of topics there and and you know when i when i'm doing these podcasts and, and certainly in my day job i teach elements of psychology and storytelling mm. and decision making all all of those kinds of things and what one of the problems that i have is how to convey all of that stuff in a manageable way to someone who's really just on the beginning of their journey because it can be really really overwhelming so if you were to give advice to someone who's maybe just starting up their own business or is a early career consultant, where do you suggest people even start looking at? 
That is a great question. Um, and it, it boils down to one word. So before I give you the one word, <laughs> let me just let me, let me just back up and tell you why it comes down to one word. Stories, when you're trying to engage an audience, is all about transformation. You know this super yeah. well. You know, you've got a hero that wants something really bad, an obstacle standing in their way. They meet a trusted guide that's going to help them navigate their way through some treacherous thing to give them a plan to call them to action that lives hopefully happily ever after, but not necessarily. It's basically a modern version of Aristotle's Poetics from 335 BC. But people get into the weeds of like, oh, story structure and Joseph Campbell's hero's journey yeah. and the neuroscience of this and that. Look, story is about making someone feel something so that they do something. So, okay, that means then if I want to be a great storyteller, whether I'm an entrepreneur with one person, whether or not I'm trying to inspire, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at companies like IBM, you want to become a student of emotion. So you want to start studying the best people that know the most about emotion and understand where does emotion come from and why? Now, again, that could take you down a foxhole. If you yeah. Google emotions right now, you'll see periodic tables and color wheels and thousands of different emotions. And it's like, oh, damn, where do I start with that? Now, if you dig deep enough, you'll probably end up with Daniel Goleman, G-O-L-E-M-A-N, wrote the great book, Emotional Intelligence. What that book says is actually there's only eight emotions. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere because this is getting simple, right? So these eight emotions, I need to understand those eight emotions then to be a good communicator. Now, there's five survival emotions of people basically out of a negative mindset. And most people are. I mean, MIT is looking at research at the moment. That the average executive, 70,000 thoughts a day, 90% the same as yesterday, 80% negative. A lot of research is showing in the C-suite, four out of five execs are overwhelmed, underprepared for challenges they're going through. As a result, they often make decisions that go against the data. You know, like Rory Sutherland knows this right, better than most people. You start looking at why did you make a decision that went against the data that looks like it's irrational, but yet the person that presented that business plan, he had the best ROI, the best cost takeout, we're going to invest. And right, people make weird decisions out of fear and anxiety and stress. Now, those five survival emotions, fear, anger, disgust, shame and sadness. Looks like they're negative. Anger could be a positive emotion, especially if you're trying to get people to do stuff. Like I spend a lot of time in climate change and you want pissed off people. Right. Because angry people do stuff. Right. right. But let's just put that five negative emotions. You've got two positive emotions. Right. And the two positive emotions are called attachment emotions. And that's either love and trust or joy and excitement. So... This is down to the big one word and the big killer question. Usually what happens in business and in pitching, it's a transfer of emotion. And we've got loads of clever ways that we would do that with slides and business models and everything from shark tanks and dragon's dens. But generally what you might be doing is moving someone from one state to another. So if I'm trying to move someone from a negative state, like I don't want to work with you or I don't understand what you do or I haven't got the money or I'm not ready and you're trying to move them to a positive state, love and trust, joy and excitement, trust is what we all want to be the trusted advisor. One emotion can do that. 
There's only one that can move between states. And it doesn't even sound like an emotion. But this is the root of most neuroscience and psychology of the way that you're changing states. Back to Daniel Goldman, 1995, and it's surprise. Most beautiful word. It's called the potentiator. Surprise. So... For anyone that's still with us on this, like this is the best takeaway that you could have potentially from what we're talking about now. Your challenge is to surprise the audience at every opportunity. Chances are you're only going to have one moment in each presentation to do that. People think you've got several. Probably not. It's probably only going to be one. Focus on what that one is and make sure you double down on it and there's enough drama when it's ready to drop. But that's the question you've got to ask yourself. Whoever it is that I'm about to speak to and the best presenters and the best pitchers do this really well. Something happens in a cold open right at the beginning or in a big reveal at the end. Could be a software demo, could be a massive stat they didn't expect, a big claim that you've made. And they're like, seriously, are you sure you can do that? Like, And they're like, I don't, either believe you or I don't understand, but show me how. And the best stories are not about the what and they're not about the why. Like we all love talking about what we've got in the truck to sell. We all love going deep on the golden circle and Simon Sinek with we finding our why. Big stories are about big hows. And once you start talking about show me how you're going to do that, that's really what we want to get to after a pitch. But that is usually the byproduct of surprising the audience to go, okay, then go and then I'll give you some rope. You show me how you're going to do that. You won me over. I've had a number of people in my career say, you know, I love what you do. I love your teachings and everything, but I almost feel in a strange place morally because now I know these things. I can kind of manipulate people without them knowing. And I think that perhaps is a fine line, but if you're doing things for the right reason you're not trying to sell someone a piece of crap they don't need you genuinely want to help people do you think it's more about that mindset it is and there's even a phrase for it and the, i heard it from vinay reddy vinay reddy is joe biden's speechwriter, mm. and he talks about rhetoric for good like we talk a lot at ibm about tech for good and p-tech and call for code and trying to inspire the next generation of developers and you're really trying to do something good with technology that's going to impact the world in a positive way. Same thing goes for communications. Rhetoric, which is why it's got such a bad reputation, because we know it can manipulate audiences, because it's about psychology and neuroscience. And you look at pathos, ethos and logos, the, you know, the three appeals of rhetoric, and you see political leaders who absolutely polarise audiences, you know, no matter who they are. Right. And that can be used for better or worse, right? Because you're trying to influence an audience. Dan Pink does loads of great work on this, right? You know, he was a speechwriter for Al Gore at one point. Yeah. And you start looking at like the science of persuasion, which is no difference to influence of trying to get an audience. Look at the definition of influence. You go in a dictionary. It's forcing people to do things that they wouldn't have normally done. But yet wow. we want to be an influencer. I want to be... And you think about that, you know, in the language of kind of how sensitive we are at the moment... I'm forcing somebody to do something that they wouldn't have normally done. But actually, I'm just an influencer. Like, Danny, if you, if you make a brand recommendation, you know, a lot of people are going to listen to that and going to go and do the thing. 
people might want to buy your influence, but you're getting someone's behavior to change based upon something they wouldn't have normally bought that. Right. Now, rhetoric's exactly the same. So what Vino Reddy talks about, which is rhetoric for good, is about how can you use words and language to try and change things for the better. Now, it doesn't matter whatever your view of Joe Biden might be, but if you was to go back and look at his inauguration speech, you'd find something really interesting. Because most communications, back to the hero's journey, conflict and obstacle, heroes and villains, like intention and obstacle, as Aaron Sorkin talks about it, it's all about tension. It's all about, you know, we've got the hero that wants something and somebody's standing in their way. This is the villain. How easy would it have been for Joe Biden to have talked about a villain, given what went on days and weeks before, not to mention the previous presidency, right? You've got that set up for the hero's journey. And even Disney and Pixar, that's a general Western hero's journey, conflict obstacles, heroes, villains. Now, if you look at his inauguration speech, he didn't do that at all. Now, bearing in mind that when Trump did his, his inauguration speech, that it was talk of build a wall, Mexicans are rapists. You know, it was all about American carnage. Dramatic, right? It was big and it was bold and it was conflicts and obstacles. What Biden did was really clever. He used contrast, not conflict. Now, what normally happens in the West is we think about conflict in terms of a story because that's what creates dopamine that helps us to want to know what happens next in a story. But there's a lot of times in business when you don't really need that, especially if it's not a competitive environment. So you start to use, as Aaron Sorkin would say, the magic word, which is but. Right. And I can't remember how many times. It might have been 14 times, probably more. But Joe Biden used the word but a lot. And what he was doing, he wasn't talking about oh, I've come with a new way and we don't want to have the old way that nobody liked because he knew he needed to try and unite a nation with this speech. People who were so angry, things had happened, right, in the capital very, very recently before his speech. So he's like, we need to have this element of rhetoric for good. So I'm not going to speak out about conflict. We've had enough of that. I'm going to speak about contrast. And he had this really clever use of the word but. And when I look at the best presenters that we have at IBM, for example, people like Dario Gill, who lead our research division, he uses but about once a minute. And when you listen to one of his speeches, and you know it's amazing because he's brilliant, but when you look at things like how many times he used the words but, you start to get a sense behind the scenes of, oh, there was a structure to that <laughs> speech as well. Yeah. And there was maybe a deliberate use. Now, somebody might say that's manipulating an audience. I would just say that is a really clever use of language to try and help people come on a journey with contrasts or conflicts to try and create the dopamine where the audience is thinking, as Neil Gaiman would say, and then what happened? You know, if your audience is thinking those four words, you're winning. That's what's the alternative to this kind of manipulation. Is it to bore an audience basically so <laughs> it's rhetoric's tools right isn't it? exactly all we're doing is we're giving folks this podcast is all about giving people tools to help them present communicate and pitch better like any tool you give someone a chisel someone's going to make a beautiful animal or a table or a chair 
Someone else is going to stab somebody. (laughs) It's a tool. What do you do with it? You've got rhetoric for good. You can use it to manipulate an audience if you want to, but please don't. Yeah. So let's just hone in a second on this this contrast piece, because I don't think a lot of people realize what a simple and effective mechanism contrast is. And, you know, I've listened to the Nancy Duarte talk on sparklines and that's, you know, helps yep. helped me a lot. And I know your work, you, you draw everything, you draw the shapes of stories and you draw the shapes of speeches so that mm-hmm. you can hit that contrast, right? Tell, tell me a bit more about that. So I think it's it, when you start looking at cultures, I've got a global role, so I spend a lot of time in different countries. And it would be irresponsible to think that the same presentation in one country is going to work in another. And sometimes tech companies have a bit of arrogance because, you know, whether East Coast or West Coast, you've got an American pitch. We know from being around Europe, every European company is radically different. If I go and give a presentation in Sweden, kind of want everybody to agree. And if there's not majority of consensus, stuff's not going to happen. But if I'm going to go over to Amsterdam, you know, or Copenhagen, there might be a chance where if, if it's 50-50, we might still have a go. Right. We might still give this a chance. We'll do a little proof of concept or something. If I go to France, it's a very different presentation. If I go to Paris, it's different again. When I'm in Munich, Germany's very different. And the further east I go. So I started studying this quite a lot because I like to draw speeches. I'm a big believer that if you draw something down and write it, it's the quickest way to learn it. And especially if you're then going to teach it, quickest way to learn is to teach other folks. And I drew up, I've got a very simple brain, and I drew up on these two styles of storytelling. And the storytelling that I was used to was very Western. It was very Disney, Pixar, once upon a time blank, and then this happened blank until finally, and we've all been in storytelling workshops when someone's rolled out a slide like that, filling the gaps. But that's the basic story of heroes and villains. Conflicts and obstacles, gives them a plan, calls them to action, hopefully lives happily ever after. Or as Aristotle would say, comedy and tragedy. But, but, (laughs) when you go east, it's very different. Because Western stories like to be finite. We like to have this beginning, middle and an end. Even TED Talks, right? Three acts of six minutes. Right, excite, disturb, assure. Three acts of six minutes, 18-minute talk. We have the big reveal at the end. Denouement, everything's good. East is not like that. You go and speak to a lot of folks in Southeast Asia, for example, they're going to talk to you more about the journey. They're not going to talk about, tell me what happened in the story and how the hero was transformed. They're going to talk about the philosophy and the mindset and what happened on this journey and why did they get to where they go. And, and the story stops... But you're, all you're doing is stopping on part of a journey. It's not necessarily got a, a, a specific thing, right? So you could take, say, Pixar as one example and Studio Ghibli as a Japanese example. And Studio Ghibli, G-H-I-B-L-A, is like the Japanese Pixar. And they did Spirited Away and loads of other absolutely incredible work. Loads of beautiful documentaries about Studio Ghibli worth checking out. But Studio Ghibli used a process called Kisho Tenketsu. Kisho Tenketsu. K-I, Kisho, S-H-O, Ten, T-N, Ketsu. Kisho Tenketsu is not based on conflict. It's based on contrast. 
So that's the first thing. And if you Google it, Google the shape and you'll see straight away, whatever your favorite storytelling structure might be, from Joseph Campbell and Freitag and Duarte, and right, we've got the traditional Kisho Tenketsu is very different because you might have a conflict or an obstacle, but it doesn't necessarily happen to the hero. It's something that happens along the way on this journey. And the story is all about what happens on this journey. And then the story stops, leaving the audience to think, how is this going to help me on my journey? So one way of boiling that down would be the West loves conflict because it's drama and it's Netflix and it's battle. But the East loves contrast. And I think there's a lot we can learn in the West, especially at the moment, right, with the current political climate and with the way that, you know, and without even getting into diversity and inclusion and a lot of the stuff that's happened over the last few years with Black Lives Matter and Me Too and LGBTQ+. We need more contrast. And maybe in our storytelling and pitching, we need to stop relying so heavily on the conflict do you know what I mean? So something might happen to disrupt the story, but it isn't necessarily something that has directly impacted the hero where everything's about to go to shit because. <laughs> and and the best presenters understand that because there might be an audience that you're speaking to and that you're preparing for right now. And you know that they might be struggling with all sorts of personal stuff. Right. You know, and they might be struggling with some sort of conflict or there might be something going on in their own life. And, and it could be health. It could be imposter syndrome. There's a million and one things it could be. But a lot of presenters and communicators, a lot of pitchers almost don't realize that that's an option. Like that's a tool. That's a club you've got in your bag. You start to use contrast, a little bit of Kisho Tenketsu, and all of a sudden make people feel something so they do something. You're the one that they want to speak to. Now, everybody understands why until you tell them what you just did. But now everything's changed. So let me ask you a bit more about your personal process. We talked at the beginning about this stuff can be overwhelming. And the more you talk about it, probably the more overwhelming it becomes. We've we've got not only different frameworks we can use, but we've got different philosophies we can use and different mm-hmm. cultures. There's, there's so many different ways we could go about creating a speech or a speech or a pitch or a, or a presentation so if i said to you right jez we've got this great big opportunity and uh, i need you to influence a, a bunch of people for me you've got one hour to do it do you have a standard process almost that you tend to go through mm. or or do you Take a bit of time to think, right, which of these from my bag of tools am I going to delve into this time? So so there's a simple version and there's a slightly more complicated version. Let me give you the simple version to start with. There's, There's a structure to every single story. And it is like trying to understand the tools. Once you start getting into the complexity of storytelling, there's many things that you need to do. And it does take a while and requires quite a bit of effort. Storytelling is one of those things that people discount as a soft skill, which pisses me off all the time. Right. Soft skills. Storytelling is only easy when you don't know how to do it. When you understand exactly how and why it works and you see behind the curtain and the wizard and what's going on with the structure, you realize, damn, that's that's incredibly hard. Right. We'll come on to that in a minute. 
when I look at the simple version of when I'm going to go and present three acts, three part structure, I've got to win an audience over often very quickly. And if I'm spending time with senior executives, sometimes that might be three minutes. Right. Sometimes that's all I've got. Now, even though there might be many things that come after, if I've lost them on three minutes, then everything else falls away anyway. So I'm like, okay, how could we do the most damage? And you start looking at Saturday Night Live. You start looking at cold opens. You start looking at comedians and how they structure their sets or the opening scene of your favorite movie. Excite, disturb, assure, right? Excite, disturb, assure. And I've heard this in from various different business leaders and we've used it with some of our senior leaders as well. But it basically is really, really simple. What you're actually saying is, I'm about to go and present this thing. I've got to go and speak to an audience and not everybody's going to know what I do. I need as much background as I can on the audience and the proposition. And if I don't know my stuff, then nothing else matters anyway. But let's assume that I know that. I now need to go and present and pitch. Tell me two things to excite them, two things to disturb them, and two things to assure them. What I'm basically saying is, what I'm about to show you is incredible. You've never seen anything like what I'm about to show you because, but we now have a conflict or a contrast, but the world's going to shit. Nine out of 10 IT projects fail. We've got all of these challenges politically. We've got X, Y, Z, internal change, chaos, whatever. Elephant in the room or a black swan, right? So that's the disturb. And then the assure which is really the root of a great pitch, which what we, you might be actually about to set up for the next person is I'm about to show you that we're the only company in the world that can do this because. That assurance, which isn't always a direct claim because not always you can say that. You might just need to tell a great story which is rooted in trust. But that assure is here's why you should trust and believe what we're about to tell you. It could be a transfer of emotion, it could be oxytocin, it could be my twin story, it could be your personal human connection to this project or why you love this company so much, you've always been a big fan of what they've done or whatever. But it basically just comes down to that. So I've got a three minute pitch, I might look at that and go, three minutes is 180 seconds, how fast do I talk? About 140 words a minute. So I need 140 words probably two bullet points, maybe three, to excite them. This is why you should always write scripts longhand because you can go back and you can look at syllables and scripts and word count and make sure your timing works. 140 words to excite them. 140 words to disturb them. Here's the reason you're in a mess. Here's the problem. Here's why you don't like us, don't want to work with us, didn't work before. Here's why it's never been successful. And then 140 words about the solution that you're about to introduce. Now that works, whether that is three minutes, 30 minutes or three hours, all that happens is you get a lot more up and down. So now you're in the realm of just gorgeous people like Nancy Duarte, where you're basically just trying to apply your favorite movie or TV show into a boardroom or a business environment. And it's no different, people lose this. We do orals all the time at IBM. We do these meetings. Two hours, we're about to show you everything we're about to do on this project. Um, two hours sounds a lot to me like a movie. Right. I might be thinking in terms of some framework like Save the Cat that a screenwriter would use. 
which is the way that you get movies greenlit. And the save the cat framework is basically how do you paraphrase a movie into 10 minutes? Speechwriters and people like Al Gore would call it the truth in 10. Give me the pitch in 10 minutes. Still the same thing. Three minutes, three minutes, three minutes. But what you're using is the screenwriter's framework, save the cat, for your two-hour presentation. So I'm going to systematically take those 120 minutes and treat my business audience as if they're watching a movie because our brains are all wired in the same way. It doesn't matter that we're at work. I've got a limited attention span. I want to see heroes and villains and conflicts and obstacles and contrast. I want to see a fake victory. I might want to see a crisis of the soul, a dark night. I want to see some fun and games. I want to see what I think is the big reveal at the end, but actually it's not. Okay, let me, let me ask you a practical question because this is another question I get asked quite a lot of the time when I'm coaching people. And that is, you know, I'm always saying you've got to write a script because then you'll know how long you're going to take and you can be succinct mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. And when during COVID, we've been doing a lot of remote pitching. And actually, that's fine because you can read off a script. Now we're getting to pitching face to face again. And some of the people that I coach are freaking out because they're like, well, I can't learn all of that. I can't possibly. So I'm just going to use a script to practice and then say totally whatever I want <laughs> during the actual thing. And it's not always a very good resolution. So I try and get them to learn the script off by heart as much as possible. But some people's brains are different and it's genuinely hard for some people to learn scripts. What, mm -hmm. what, what advice have you got for people who have got to do a longish speech or presentation and they really want to nail it, but they don't want to be reading off a piece of paper in front of them? Well, first of all, we have a mutual friend in Tony Robbins and he's, he does this all the time for the best in the world. Right. And he has a phrase that he likes to roll out that says, you don't rehearse until you get it right. You rehearse until you can never get it wrong. Now, some people, some people are just amazing communicators and can just turn up at the drop of a hat. I can think of dozens of business leaders I'm working with in our company that are just great at that with very, very little prep. They're just great. And they can read a room and they, they're smart and they can communicate. Their brain works at a thousand miles an hour and they're just awesome every time. Um, or I think, think of a, a couple of other business leaders who are, they have a canned pitch in their head right. that they've done a thousand times. But again, they're such good communicators when you hear it for the first, it's like they've never done it before. Yeah. And a lot of the best keynote presenters I've seen, people that charge an absolute fortune, um, are great at that. Um, Chris Hadfield's one of the best that I've seen that I've worked with from NASA. Um, you know, the astronaut that was commander of the, of the International Space Station. He's given that speech a million times. And we had him at Think a few years ago. And you would think he's delivering that for the first time. Right. Practiced and rehearsed that to within an inch of its life, but he delivers it in a way that he's even surprising himself halfway right, through. Right, exactly. Right now, without taking away from my twin story that we talked about before, I've I've not told that story many times, but I have told it on some stages, and I know, in front of a big audience, especially if there's a big picture of them behind me, I know when I'm going to cry. Right. I know that, and I can't get away from it, and I never want to, but I always do. Yeah. But I thought I have to embrace that as Absolutely. a communicator yeah. because what I know is going to happen is that the audience is going to have that moment of awkwardness 
And then that moment of empathy and the oxytocin is going to be going completely mad in their brain. And I'm not trying to manipulate an audience, but I am very much aware that this has just happened and I need to carry on with the feeling in the room that has now radically changed. Right. Anyway, loads of that is all about spontaneity. But for the vast majority of people, and especially people that are presenting for the first time, you can't do that. And most of us either don't have that superpower, haven't practiced it 10,000 times, or you know they're not in that environment, which is why everybody has to write a script. Now, what goes wrong is that you look at the best TED presenters and you think, oh, they were, com-. well, first of all, they're not, they didn't do it on the fly. So Ken Robinson, probably the only person that did at the highest level. Right. And, you know, look at him, he's still 400 million views, 20,000 views every day and just like the best TED talk of all time. Very loosely structured, but for the most part, they are engineered to within an inch of their life. And they are taught by the team at TED and Chris Anderson, 10 hours per minute. And you can you actually go on the TED website and see explicit, anyone can go on there and see explicit instructions of how Simon many months Sinek, right? before you have to start writing this 180 thing. hours on an 18-minute talk. Wow. Now, whenever I'm looking at a talk, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily giving TED Talks all the time, but it might be someone asked me to give a 30-minute talk. They might approach you like, I'm sure they do this to you all the time. Oh, oh Danny, we've just got, we've got this little block. We just need you to do uh-huh. a thing for 30 minutes. Is it okay? Can you turn up and do the thing? You know what I'm talking Absolutely. about. In your mind, if you're thinking about the audience and if you're thinking, I want this to be good and I might not have done it to this audience before with this type of content, you're probably thinking that could be up to an hour per minute. Right. So you're not thinking, have I got 30 minutes spare? You're thinking, where am I going to find 30 hours? Yeah to create this amazing 30-minute pitch. Now, the reason that you write things longhand is not just to look at a word count. It's not just to figure out, can I do what I need to do in the allotted amount of time that I've got? Because the best presenters, you know, they do do that. The people at Winget turn up with a few bullet points and record cards. They always go over. Yes, It's never structured. Yes. They're always five minutes long. They don't reach their denouement at the right point. There's not the dramatic pause. They rush towards the end because they're running out right. of time and they're flashing things on and a bell's just dung. But when you start writing things long, think about the best... We're talking about comedians a lot, but I'm thinking of the folks that really obsess over the art and science, Ricky Gervais, you know, Chris Rock, Harry, um, Jerry Seinfeld. They spend years on each joke. Yeah. Lin-Manuel Miranda, right? Hamilton. He spent two years just writing my shot. One right. song, two years. Yeah. Back to obsession. The best people are obsessed. So I guess the question to this audience is, you can go through the motions and do the thing and you can be conversational and hope that it lands within the time. Um, you could go and do the pitch. And it's, you know, every, but if you want to surprise the audience... And I'm not talking about a one-off. Like if you constantly want to surprise the audience and be brilliant every time and your profile and your brand and everything, right? You've got to put forth the effort, right? Even, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and again. Everybody can wing a talk and have a success and close a deal, right? And a pitch just landed and it worked and the timing was okay. But if you want to do that consistently, 
you need structure, you need a shitload of practice, and you need to be so well scripted that you are so well rehearsed that whenever you present it, it feels like it just came out of your mouth, the top of your head, and it's the first time you've ever done it. Hope is not a strategy, as Vince Lombardi said. There you go. Yeah, love it. Now, the other thing which I know you're passionate about, and I know that you are phenomenally good at, um, is creating the visuals that go with that script. So one of the main reasons in my mind why writing scripts is a good idea is because if you try and start with visuals, you just end up in this gray mire of manipulating your story to match what pictures you want. So I always Mm. say, you know, your script should be absolutely perfect before you start thinking about how can I then use visuals or video or music or whatever to elevate and accentuate that story, not to be its direct uh, accompaniment in visual form. And you've told me stories about, what was it? You you spent about 30 hours on one slide. I'm sure you've given me some kind of... Oh, I've spent a lot. Yeah, I've spent probably close to 100 hours on one slide in the past to try and make it good. But I guess it comes back to that point, doesn't it? We think of this transfer of emotion Want, want the audience to feel something so that they do something. You know, the rhetorical appeals that we chatted about before, there's only three of them. It's really simple. Pathos, ethos, and logos. Pathos, an emotional argument. And pathos, the fancy Greek word, is where pathetic and sympathy and empathy comes from. Um, logos, data, evidence, reason, and proof. Got to have a data-driven argument. Like Brené Brown says, a story is just data with a soul. And then you've got to have ethos. And ethos is personal credibility and trust, like authority. Why me? Like I'm here because you've invited me to do the thing. Now, those are the three elements of rhetoric widely used in politics. That's how you make someone feel something. Now, in business, usually we're in a mission critical environment, especially in pitching. And we've got a very finite amount of time. So it's not enough just to make someone feel something. We've got to help them to do something. We've got to drive them to do something. So I obsess over this word called kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, another brilliant Greek word. One translation is all about the opportune time that you did it at the right time. But generally it translates as a supreme moment at which one simply must act, no matter how implausible or inconvenient. So it means whether the audience likes you or not, you've done something to create the environment where they must act this isn't a pitch that, oh, we'll, we'll do that next quarter or we'll put it on the shelf and we'll come and look at this in Q1. This is like, no, right now we do this. So if that's the objective, okay, well, what do visuals come in? Because you want to make someone feel something. Now, if you've understood the audience well enough, you are going to use those visuals in a way to trigger emotions and hormones in that audience. Now, for some people, it might be, loads of slides and visuals and you could be using them as wallpaper if you've ever ever seen seth godin present brilliant quick fire machine gun 45 minute keynote you know 250 slides al gore presents a presentation you can google it it's called truth in 10 truth in 10 is 55 slides average transition is every 11 seconds but that's the average because what actually happens You might have a slide for 30 seconds and then 20 seconds and then 10, then five. 
and then 111, black screen. Big dramatic pause. Is the tech stopped working? Has he lost his lines? Has he forgot? <laughs> and then you drop the big statistic. Right. And what ends up happening, so when people like Aaron Sorkin talk about the musicality of a script, and he sees music, not just words, you can use the rhythm of PowerPoint to create that feeling. And Al Gore does that incredibly well. Now, if I was to go to the other extreme, 90% of the presentations I do have zero PowerPoint because I'm speaking to chief execs and chief execs want things on the back of a napkin or a whiteboard or a flip chart. And the best example of that is probably Steve Jobs, you know, going and reimagining Apple in 1997 and he drew two lines on a whiteboard and showed that's what the future of Apple is going to be when it was three months away from bankruptcy. Yeah. But that's generally how the most senior leaders work. Now, once you start getting into the weeds and you're looking at either delivery folk or specific teams and you've got to map out the architecture and everything else, of course, we need sure. lots and lots of slides. But it's still back to our save the cat and our structure. It's great having the most intense architecture slide that everyone's ready for. But please make sure I'm in the mindset to be prepared for that. And you might have teased me with a video like you're great at dropping in dramatic images and great quotes and maybe some anecdote and a bit of levity, but you're building up to whatever that thing is going to be, right? And this is the architecture of the platform stack of how it works. The mistake that most people make, especially in the company <laughs> we work in IBM, is they might have dozens of architecture slides with a lot of words, type size smaller than... You know what I'm talking about. I know about. what you're talking about. And, and the audience is just overwhelmed. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than listening to a presenter as good as they are and seeing lots of content and the cognitive load is incapable of processing the words and the tone and the body language of how brilliant this person is whilst I also need to process what's on this slide right. and try and make sense right. of the chaos. And sometimes right? it's as simple as people get the order wrong. So you talked about surprise and we talk about emotion a lot as well. Often our brains are not ready and willing on a subconscious level to listen to granular detail until you've got them excited, switched them on, alerted them, flight, fight or flight, whatever it is, surprise, fear. Mm. And so getting something in the beginning of a presentation that makes people look at the screen and say, what did he just say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Big cold open. Yeah, I love it. So that brings us nicely, actually. And you've mentioned JFK a few times and it's fresh in your mind. You're the kind of guy who always has something that they're deep into and passionate, probably obsessed with. And you put a great LinkedIn post out. Uh, it was yesterday or the day before talking about how JFK's big speech about putting the man on the moon was so impactful right. and significant and all the rest of it. So I to know a bit about that, but I really want to know what are you going to do with this information? Because it's so interesting from a historical and storytelling standpoint. How are you going to convert that into some kind of mechanism that, that we can use to, to improve our own way of speaking and presenting? Yeah. And it's a little bit like I'm, I am turned on by the best of the best and trying to understand how the best communicators do what they do. And there's, I don't want to say they're cliches, that's probably a little bit mean, but 
for a long time, I used to tell people, um, well, I'd ask them, like, what's your favorite speech, your favorite book? And it, all the usual, you know, the Martin Luther King and Gettysburg Address. And Anyway, in business, it's, it's been widely acknowledged, including by Time magazine, that the best business presentation of all time was the iPhone launch by Steve Jobs. 2007, right? It's about one hour and 45. I think it was 07, yeah. And, um, and Nancy Duarte has done a brilliant job of yeah. trying to unpack, you know, all of that. And she worked closer with Apple at the time. Um, I believe that the best technology speech that's ever been given by miles is the moon speech on the 12th of September in 1962. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. So I'll give you the highlights. So this is 1962, right? JFK's just got in. Shouldn't really have got in as president. He's kind of trading on, you know, Catholic values. And people didn't want a Catholic in the Oval Office at the time as well. They thought maybe Rome is going to start running America. You also had this guy that's incredibly handsome and very media friendly, but from quite a wealthy background. And there was a lot of discrepancy around that. You know, what does it mean for business leaders? But also, he wasn't really a great presenter in the beginning. He had communications coaches and people helping him to pitch and win an audience. And you end up kind of looking at this guy that genuinely came in to try and change stuff, but at the same time was a very flawed individual, right? Turned out to be this incredible communicator, arguably one of the best inauguration speeches that's ever been given, ask not. And, you know, the assassination and the legacy and a lot of the stuff that we know, but sleeping with almost everybody, right? Marilyn Monroe, arguably in this, you know, all sorts of sordid stories of... Famous celebrities phoning under pseudonyms of the of the dashboard into the Oval Office. And you kind of end up with, but he gave this speech on the 12th of September 1962 at Rice University in Houston, Texas. And it was a speech based upon a claim and um, an objective that he had with Congress the year before to put man on the moon within a decade. Looked like, talk about rhetoric for good, what do we want to do? We want to advance science and knowledge and space exploration and inspire the next generation, which is actually what happened, you know, doubling year on year the amount of science graduates. Was that his intention at the beginning? Of course it wasn't. There's, there's the Cold War. Right, let's beat the like, Russians war, to the moon, please. <laughs> war triggers people to do stuff. 100%. Because, you know, Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin right. and the satellites flying over our heads and school kids in America are climbing into desks because they're sure there's going to be a nuclear war yeah, and we're in a mess yeah. and... Blah, blah. Now, bearing in mind, come off the back of a recession, you've got huge civil rights issues in America in the 60s. Um, you've got campus riots. They're about to go into Vietnam, not to mention many, many other things that we haven't got time to discuss. And in the middle of all of that, this guy says, we're going to put man on the moon within a decade. You're like, okay. Um Great, that might make a headline. Turns out it actually didn't at the time. People didn't respond to the talk in the way that right. um, they perhaps thought that they might. Man on a moon within... So, so this is about faith and it's about vision because we don't actually know the benefits of putting man on the moon. We don't even know if we can do it because up until this point, we've only had 15 minutes of somebody in space. Right, right? and that was pretty ropey. Who didn't even go into orbit. <laughs> exactly. Alan Shepard, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, the, and the technology and the materials to be able to do this didn't even exist. And yet, 1962, right? 
He gives this speech and the idea is that man's going to be in the moon by the end of the decade. So what, first of all, what I'm fascinated by is a couple of numbers. He gave this speech, which was 17 minutes and 46 seconds long. It's 1,076 seconds. Let's call it 1,000 seconds. You talk about words and pitches that can make a difference, right? 1,000 seconds created this legacy for a guy who was only in his job for a 1,000 days, unfortunately, because right, he was assassinated, but yet set in motion a chain of events where through civil rights and all of the other things and Martin Luther King and Bobby assassinations and other things happening, that still by the end of the decade it actually happened, which was 2,503 days later, changes in administration, budget cuts, deaths, failures, test flights that didn't work, rockets that blew up, managed to do it. Now, okay, Jeremy, why is that important? NASA has been doing some work recently, the 400,000 employees at NASA in order to do that project, which actually ended up in December 1972 when the last man walked on the moon. And now NASA is ready to do it again. Right. So Artemis is about to launch. Yeah. Artemis 3, which will be 2025, we're going to be back on the moon again. So I can't, there's a relevancy and a recency that I like as well. But you've got 400,000 people at NASA that need to rally around this big idea when the odds are so heavily stacked against them because it doesn't exist. And there's going to be politics and bureaucracy and everything else. And there's a little cliche that perhaps, you know, some of our audience have heard. JFK was walking around Cape Canaveral. There's a guy sweeping the floor at night, the janitor. What are you doing? He was asking him about what you're doing so late at night. The guy's mopping the floor and he says, I'm helping to put man on the moon. That gave me... Right, and that becomes this that thing of the guy doing now. the most yeah. menial yeah. task feels like he's committed to this big vision that JFK has just laid down. Now, research from Andrew Canton at Wharton has been trying to look into this, which is part of the assets that I've got that's not just going to create a book, but a journal and a learning program. And actually is probably, hopefully, going to be turned into a screenplay that we might pitch to um, Amazon Prime and Netflix. Because there's glamour, there's sex, there's Marilyn, right. there's JFK, yeah. there's politics, there's space. There's It's like the best. It's like Mad Men and Queen's Gambit, yeah. like thrown together. It's freaking genius, right? And it's the 60s, so it's sexy as hell. And the soundtrack would be amazing. But in the middle of all of that, 400,000 people, they started to look back at performance reviews and they started to look back at people who had talked about their careers and even the people that were soldering the circuit boards that felt like they were doing a menial task. But actually, when they were talking later on in their career, they thought that not only were they trying to put a man on the moon, they were advancing science. Right. And this research has shown that of the 400,000 folks, almost exclusively, everything at some point goes back to this one 17-minute speech on the 12th of September, 1962. So as someone who loves communications, I look at that and think, wow, a 17-minute speech genuinely changed the world. Now, it was the right speech to the right audience at exactly the right time. So I started dissecting that speech, deconstructing it. 
it gets even more fascinating when you start breaking it down. And if anyone wants to go and watch it, watch it with a notebook and your favorite drink. Here's what you're going to find out. Minute by minute, there's a theme. 17 minutes, 17 themes, and it's almost linked to Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And it's almost linked to the principles of what we've just been talking about for all this time with cold opens, intention and obstacle, heroes and villains. We've got four words and five lines of every great speech, four words, brevity, levity, clarity, and charity. Brevity, keep it short. It's only a 17 minute speech. Levity, keep it light. There was nice quotes and anecdotes. Charity, you've got a higher purpose. We're going to do this together and do things that have never been done before to advance science and education. Clarity. There was so much complexity in that speech. Really highly technical. Things that rockets could do. What it would mean to actually enable the technology to put man on the moon. It'd be like sending somebody from Cape Canaveral in Florida and throwing a football from Florida all the way over to Texas, Houston... And that football landing between the 40-yard lines. That's the accuracy of the shot that you need to make right. to land man on the moon. So now the audience is like, oh, shit. That's so, but now I've got reference that makes sense because right. they're all exactly. the football yeah. field. Anyway, so you break the speech down minute by minute and you see, wow, these are the 17 principles of storytelling. So... I then started going back and connecting with the folks that had been helping on that program. IBM was a big part. Lockheed Martin and their Skunk Works project. Um, US military. You start looking at folks from the JFK library of like, what were the notes? But that's what I was going to ask you, actually. How much do we know about how that speech was constructed? How formulaic was it? Was it built with that intention of hitting those themes or is it one of those things that is more of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that now we look back on that as a... Well, it's fascinating. You could, If you really want to go and Google it, you could probably see some of the archives that have been scanned. If you just search JFK archives, RICE, um, R-I-C-E, moon speech, and you'll see things like the press release that was sent out the day before, which will say not for distribution because the press have got to have the copy up front to put in their copy right, for the newspaper. Right. And you read the press copy, and you realise that's not what he said. <laughs> right? And then you look at the reading copy from Ted Sorensen, and that sounds awesome, but that's there's a lot of stuff in there that's not what he said either. Right. And then like, there's notes written on the back of napkins and notebooks in the hotel the night before that started to change things, because now... Generally, speeches like this are written on the fly. John Favreau, who wrote for Obama, did a lot of this as well. Like you're almost writing some of these speeches on the fly on a clipboard on the way up to the lectern. And as the presenter's about to set foot on stage, you're trying to feed the scripts to the auto cue to make sure they've yeah, got the updated yeah. copy. Like it is that tight. And JFK was exactly the same. So changes the speech the night before changes a few of the anecdotes when he's actually giving the speech then the press team realize okay now we need to get the actual transcript and we send that to the (laughs) press of the one that he actually gave but when you see those amendments and what they were 
he starts adding in things like, you know, they've got a big monologue about why do we do these things? Why should we put man on the moon? Why does, why does, why does? 35,000 people in that stadium, a lot of them students, you're looking for empathy. You're looking for oxytocin and connection with the audience. Even the best presenters in the world are going to lose an audience at some point, especially if it's really hot or if they're distracted. And even the, the fact it's a president, you're still going to zone out a little bit. So one of the biggest rounds of applause is when he adds in a line that he created at like midnight the night before. Why does Rice play Texas? And I know it sounds really silly, but that football analogy, you know, given that Rice and Texas are these two adversaries and there was a lot going on with Rice and Texas at the time. And obviously the pride of the people at Rice versus, you know, the Texas folks just down the road. Everybody in the audience is laughing. You've got oxytocin. The endorphins have risen. Endorphins is an antidote to fear and anxiety. And so it's like he's he's triggering all of these little hormones in the audience. And you've got like this, when you break down all 17 pieces, you end up with almost structurally what is the perfect speech. And what I'm going to make the case for in the book and all of the things that are going to follow is that, you know, you need to know the rules in order to break them. But this speech is structurally perfect and it enabled people to do things that they'd never done before. And not everybody was at the same level. Some people were ready to buy into a vision straight away, like often people are behind a Mark Benioff or a Steve Jobs or a Satya Nadella, Elon Musk, like whoever. Some people listen to the talk. They're going to do it and follow. Other people are just like, shit, man, I'm just, I'm just soldering circuits. I want to get paid and go home because I'm worried about my energy bills. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I just want to put some food on the table and keep the missus happy. And I've got to go on holiday and I can't afford it. Like they're not purpose driven. They are just like, I just need some bank. Right. Now, what really clever leaders like JFK do, we look at them now in retrospect and think they're visionaries. And actually, they're not visionaries. They're what's known as architects. And architects don't just drop the big speech or the big pitch. They set in motion a chain of events afterwards where they've specifically architected the process by which that can happen, which for JFK was everything that needed to inspire 400,000 people to get the job done by the 20th of right July 1969. So that gap of that two and a half thousand days, if there wasn't that level of commitment, it's just another speech from another political leader making a big claim about something that's never been done. Biden just did one about cancer. Do people believe it? Are they going to do it? Are they still going to be committed to the cause in six years time? If you do it right, the best speeches, they have the power to do that. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. We've got to come to an end. I could genuinely talk for at least another, I don't know, 59 hours. Before <laughs> we sign off, I want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything you want to want to plug yourself? Anything that you're doing that you want, want to share with, with the listeners? I think the main thing is that I, it doesn't matter how creative or not you think you are. Some people think they're natural storytellers. Some people think they're too technical. That's for the folks. I'm a big believer that every single one of us is a storyteller. 
all of us. And, and our jobs, it doesn't matter what your job title is, our jobs is to tell stories as fast and as compellingly as possible. And when we start talking about heroes, to always remember that the hero is always the audience. Always the audience. And we might talk about, you know, different narratives and things along the way. And you've all got the chops to do that. And just learning simple structures and frameworks gives you the tools to be able to do that and the confidence and the swagger. You might need to go on quick time and record yourself a few times. You might need to practice a dozen times, rehearse till you can never get it wrong. But I guarantee, no matter what you think of yourself right now, you are an absolutely brilliant storyteller around the topic that you are super passionate about. So there's two quotes that inspire me. One of them I write privately and one of them I used to end my keynotes with. But Barack Obama used to say, you can change the world just by sharing your story. And I've always liked that. But it's always been like, well, you know, if I say that to a group, especially if it's some junior folks that I'm mentoring, like, yeah, but you're in these boardrooms speaking to all these people right, and right. you've got the chance to. Right. So so I start looking at what does it mean to change the world? So the flip side of that without getting all lofty and, you know, it'd be Mother Teresa said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. So that means different things to different people. And if I think about that in terms of my work colleagues, my work team might be 20 people. If I want to go back to the office and love those 20 people by helping them to get better collectively, in my world, that is changing the world right. with your story. And it your version of whatever your twins story. So, so we've got that. And I, and I think that's something that we can all dig our claws into when we should write on the first page of our notebooks, right? Do you want to change the world? Go home and love your family. But the other side of it is a quote that Steve Jobs used to say. And he said, technology is nothing. What's important is that we have faith in people, that they're basically good and smart and if given the right tools, they can do something wonderful with them. And I look at everything that you're doing, everything that you're trying to do to inspire folks on TikTok, some of the frameworks that I'm trying to help people with. All we're doing, Danny, are we not just trying to help give people some tools to try and change the world in some way? Absolutely. It's got nothing to do with the technology. That's an enabler that does interesting stuff. But you give people the right tools, they can do something wonderful with them. So the challenge to our audience, what are you going to do? Love it. Fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure. Maybe we can do this again in a year from now and let's see what other new obsessions you've got and where you got to with the whole JFK thing. That'd be a pleasure. This has been so much fun. Thanks for having me on. And good luck, everybody. Safe travels. This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity and much more.